Alright, good evening. So as we said earlier, we are going to tackle fear head on. And it is our hope in this lecture that we will all walk out of here tonight, God willing, completely free from the tyranny of fear. So our project is to look at fear, analyze what exactly it is, and then root it out systematically and assuredly in every level of our being. And it can be done. Uh, the project is a holistic one. Wonderful, Mia. Me too. The project is a holistic one. And so we'll slowly start to peel back each layer and find that fear together. We'll define it and we'll root it out. So uh, a few weeks ago, we discussed enlightenment and what it might look like to be enlightened. And we discussed maybe the five obstacles that are keeping us from that state. Our general proposition was that enlightenment is not some rarefied state. It's not some experience that is lurking somewhere in the next scroll in your next visit to Tibet. It's not uh, far away from you. It's not something that you can reach out towards. You can't take a train to it, and there's no amount of yoga, asana, pranayam that you can do for it. Enlightenment is your ease of being. It's a natural state, and it's here for you now. The work that we do together is the work of remembering, the work of recognizing what we in this tradition call pratnya bignya, just the recognition of a simple fact. So our thesis from a few lectures ago is that enlightenment is not a state, nor is it a process, nor is it even a practice, nor is it even an achievement or an attainment, nor is it anything special. It's a fact. And that's a very liberating idea in and of itself that your enlightenment is already a fact. All that's left to do is your recognizing it. And you know, you recognize it in moments. You have glimpses into this truth. In a moment of meditation, on MDMA at a rave, you know, looking into the eyes of a beloved, during asana, three hours on Wednesday, you feel it. Uh, we have these little glimpses, and hence we find ourselves here in this room, staring lovingly into one another's eyes, knowing that they know and we're all gathered here to just sit in that. So we've had these glimpses, but the work now is to experience, or rather settle into the subject of all experience on a level beyond that. Beyond just visitation, we want to live in that state. We want to stay established in that state. And so two weeks ago, we uncovered the five obstacles to enlightenment. Last week, we uncovered perhaps seven tools for living a spiritual life completely oriented around enlightenment. And today, humbly, I'd like to propose, God willing, that enlightenment, the permanent residence in the naturalness of life, is perhaps definable as such. It is a state wherein no fear exists. It is a state of complete fearlessness. And this does uh, get talked about in, in texts like the Mandukya Karaka. Gaurapada's prayer to his students is, now that you know this, may you be fearless. <laughs> in yoga, one of the primeval obstacles to samadhi is abhinivesha, fear of death. And everywhere in this tradition, we're, we're looking at fear on all levels and identifying enlightenment as that place beyond all fear. So today, that's our project. What is fear? And what are some practices or orientations that can permanently remove us from fear? And the first proposition here is to say that fear is an illusion. Just like enlightenment is already the case, we're merely pretending not to be enlightened. Fear is a pretense. We're pretending to be afraid. 
you know. Okay, it doesn't change that we really believe in that pretense, uh, but that's the proposition at least. That it is as easy to let go of fear as it is to let go of something you're holding. You know, and today's lecture is geared around guiding us all to that place. So may it happen for us. Um, and I'll tell you a story. One day, uh, a, a young student eager to learn Vedanta, curious to learn about enlightenment, went to a guru in the Himalayan mountains, Gangotri. And he went to the guru and he said to the guru rather obnoxiously and pretentiously, listen, I hear you are a great master of this system of philosophy. You must teach me enlightenment in one day. And the master looked at him and he said, one day? That's rather ambitious, isn't it? And the student said, well, you said you're, yeah, I, I've been told you're a master. And surely a master, by Einstein's definition, okay, that's a bit asynchronous, but uh, by Einstein's definition, someone who can explain something simply. If you truly get it, you should be able to explain it to me briefly and succinctly. And the master said, fine, I'll rise to the challenge. Here's what you do. Go home and get a good night's rest. Tomorrow, meet me here by the Ganga at 4.30 a.m. And I will give you the only lesson you'll ever need. And the boy is very excited. He goes home. He doesn't sleep a wink because he's so excited. The next day, he's going to get Brahma Jnana. He's going to get enlightenment, you know. So all night, he's awake in imagining his Kundalini Shakti awakening moment. He's imagining all of that. And so the next day, he runs to the Guru. He's early. He's there at 3.59. You know, he's waiting. And the Guru, he notices, is also there early. And the Guru is holding on to a tree. His arms are wrapped around a tree. You know, tree hugger, hippie. He's holding a tree. And then he starts to, to cry. Oh, I'm trapped. I'm trapped. Help me. Get me out of here. Ah. You know, and the student looks at that and he says, you idiot. Just let go of the tree. And the teacher goes, huh? Oh, and he lets go and he walks away. It's a bit of a Zen story, but that was the teaching. You know, that was Vedanta in, in, in one you know, demonstration. We could say all of that we talk together can be summarized in perhaps three hand gestures. Ideally one, but three hand gestures. The first is this. Ekam sat. Ekam sat vipra bahuda vadanti. Truth is one. Different sages in different places call it by different names. Uh, this isn't just a comparative religious statement, mind you. It is that also. So it is also saying that the I am of the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, the uh, state of perfection in Islam and, and uh, Brahman and uh, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, it's saying that all of those are one state. It's all the Tao uh, or for the Buddhists, the lack thereof. Uh, it is on one level that statement, but on a metaphysical level, the statement is a non-dual one, that existence is one. Uh, it's wrong to say that God is all things. In fact, it's better to say that only God is. And you are that. <laughs> so that's our first hand gesture. Uh, the second hand gesture in terms of practice, in terms of recognizing this, is this. You know, so this is enlightenment. This is the practice of enlightenment. Merely letting go. Another story we like to tell is the uh, monkey who used to raid a farmer's farm for bananas. You know, he used to go to the banana plantation and steal. So the farmer one day devised an ingenious trap to catch the monkey. Yes, Satu. Sati says, Satu. Now, um, the farmer took all the bananas and put it in the jar. Now, the jar was such that if you reached in to grab the bananas, you couldn't pull your hands out again unless you let go of the bananas. So the monkey... You know, it came mischievously and it saw the jar full of bananas. 
don't don't think Curious George, please. I know you're tempted to insert the image of Curious George here, but the story is going to get darker in a bit. So for your sake, don't think Curious George, okay? It's a monkey that you hate. Anyway, the monkey goes <laughs> and he puts his hand inside the jar. He grabs the banana, the bunch of banana, and the farmer jumps out from behind the tree and starts to mercilessly beat him. And the monkey's going, hey, hey, hey. you know, he's screaming, he's going, hey, hey, hey. You can imagine. Like, option hai na? What's that, Tahira? What's that? Oh, maybe it was in the field. Shit. Okay, don't worry. So the monkey grabs the, the thing and the farmer is beating him. And he's going, hey, 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 he's screaming. Now all the monkey has to do is release the banana and he can run away, you know? But it's the clutching of the banana that keeps it trapped in that cycle of being beaten. So the joke is, when the monkey releases the banana, it loses the hey, 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 you know, the pain, and it turns into a monk. The story of the monkey becoming a monk. <laughs> the story of renunciation. So, um, vipra bahuda vadanti ekam sat, right? And then this is the practice, just letting it go. And then after you manage to do this, the next hand gesture is this. You know, so where before we used to do this, you know, we want, we're going out into the world. I want money. I want power. I want my parents to tell me they're proud of me. I, you know, whatever it is that you want, you're going out to get it. The movement is this. So the unenlightened state is this. The enlightened state is this. There's nothing left to, to, to grasp. There's nothing left to fear. So once you are in that surrendered state, what is there left to do but serve? You know, once you recognize that you are beyond the body and the mind, what will the body and the mind do? It will just serve. It's, I don't know, a natural thing. Body and mind will just go on doing what it does, but with a completely new motivation. Where before you were doing what you did for something, now you're just doing what you're doing. You know, and then that, that thing that you do happens to just help people. You know, so maybe you make shoes, and we often use the example of the cobbler. Maybe you're making shoes. Uh, those shoes will help people. They'll wear the shoes and go home and want to read the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna or something. Your shoes will be spiritual. Maybe you work at a cafe. Uh, every cup of tea you pour will promote some discussion about spirit. You know, because everything that you do will be imbued by your, your spirit. And so it doesn't matter if you're like eloquent or if you're... Uh, struggling to put two sentences together, you'll be a profound teacher in one way or another. You know, because not it's not the words, it's a transmission. So these are the three kind of perhaps hand gestures describing the spiritual life. The recognition that all is one, the practice of releasing all that isn't one, and uh, the giving, the, you know, the compassion, the emanating forth, if you will. So how do we come to this practice? Today, let's, let's look at it a new way. Usually, you know, we suggest that this is where you land after everything else has disappointed you, you know. So this is kind of like a repository for unsatisfied desires. We often joke, this is camp unfulfilled. <laughs> Who knew we could get along so well with frustrated people in a room together? <laughs> but generally, the uh, evolution of the soul is as follows. We are spawned into this world and we look around and we're like, oh, and, and through, into this world we're thrown like a dog without a bone, riders of the storm or whatever. And we're looking around um, and we're told certain things. You know, our parents say, good, you know, when we do something, something good. And we're like, oh, I, I like that. I like that bit of like positive affirmation or uh, we go to school and we're told we need good grades. Why? I don't know. 
parents will love us, teachers will love us. We need to get into a good high school. I don't know. So we want the grades, you know, and then we get the grades and we want to go to some institution and then we want a good job. We want a salary and then we want the picket fence with the white dog and we want, want, want. But we want these things because we were told to want them and we want them hard. You know, we really want them. Uh, we go out and we get them. And that's one very powerful way to become spiritual. Because once you get them, you realize you don't want them. Or you realize they don't satisfy you in the way your society promised you that they would satisfy you. And you were told by all the people, hey, this is what you ought to aspire to. And then when you get it, you realize, ah, they were all lying to me. They didn't know better. I hate this. Now, in the 60s, there was a very interesting opportunity for young Americans, which was the ability to see their parents from the 50s profiting off the economic boom of that time with the white picket fence, with the nuclear family, with the car in the driveway and a good corporate position. But they were still fighting. There was still great tragedy at the dinner table. There was a restlessness, what the Christ, peace and blessings be upon him, might have called the gnawing and gnashing of teeth, you know. So the young generation of the, of the 60s, like Patti Smith or not Patti, earlier, uh, uh, were all looking at that. And they all fled their small towns and, and went off into the lower East End, Greenwich Village places and did a bunch of drugs because they were looking for a way to orient themselves to life that was not that. They were ready to live a nomadic lifestyle, um, flirting with values that were as far away from co a capitalist consumer society as possible. And that allowed a little crack in through which the light of older philosophies came, you know. And suddenly you saw this flowering of spiritual teachers that today continues. So you see, usually we come to this practice through great disappointment. Sensual delights disappointed us. It only created an ever-increasing appetite for more of the same, you know. And then we became increasingly special in the way we needed to be sens sensorially pleased, you know. Now it's no longer the hot dog, the caviar. But it's not just any caviar. It has to be the caviar from that one uh, hotel bar with that one chef who's there and that chef must be in a certain emotional state. So you better hope he's sad that day because only then that he makes that, you know, we become really kind of a... We, we, we get so rarefied in our sense pleasure. We go from raw, gross sensation to culture or, or maybe money first. We want to collect stuff. So we collect the cars, we collect the houses, and then we realize mm, something better to collect. Let's collect degrees. You know, let's collect cultural references. How many authors from the Renaissance can I cite? You know, we want to be a charming dinner party guest. And we want to listen to music and watch movies and read books, if only so we can throw our references around like we drive our Porsches, you know? So we get caught in this game of like, who's more cultural than who? Who has more money than who? And it's all animalistic and we're climbing the ladder and it's territorial and you know. And then you realize this is fucked, you know? And there's a moment when you realize all of this is empty. It's usually at a dinner party. You know, you realize in the middle of a conversation, someone is saying, well, did you see that new play on Broadway? And you're like, this is inane. This is shallow. It's superficial. There's a lack of depth here. And then you get interested in spirituality. Now, we talked about the five obstacles lecture. We talked about how when you come to spirituality, you come being disappointed with the world, but you come into spirituality with the same orientation you had when you're in the world. And that's only natural. That's the only orientation you've grown up with. And that orientation we, we all have internalized is only objects of experience are worth chasing. The sensory pleasures were objects. The cars and material security was an object. The uh, cultural goods like references were objects. 
Uh, and now those objects having failed to do what we wanted them to do, now we want other objects, spiritual objects. So where before we were collecting Porsches, now we're collecting Porsche, Porsche, I don't know how to say that. Now we're collecting uh, yoga teacher trainings. How many hours did you do, huh? What, 700 hours, you know, how many hours? Uh, uh, which guru did you study with, you know? Oh, two Vipassana retreats? <laughs> when you get to 10, let's talk, you know? Then we start to collect spiritual goods. And then we make spiritual references like, oh, you think Sankhya is good? Wait till you hear Kashmiri Shaivism as Kashema Raja articulates it in the Pratnya. You know, we get really in, the, in that game, but it's the same game, you know? And we're still looking for objects to satisfy us. We're still looking for security, power, uh, validation. It's just instead of wanting dad to say I'm proud of you, now you want guru to say I'm proud of you. And it's all the same game. So in our five obstacles lecture, we talked, yeah, it's still a hierarchy. There's still a kind of, I don't know, a territorial The five obstacle lecture, we talked about uh, what many spiritual teachers have talked about, spiritual materialism. Trungpa Rinpoche calls it that, spiritual materialism. In the uh, way of a pilgrim, which humbly, this boy thinks is the most spiritual book ever written, The Way of the Pilgrims, by a, an anonymous Russian peasant in the 19th century. Um, and in it, the pilgrim is advised by his guru not to be so voraciously hungry for books. You know, because he gets excited, he learns a new mantra, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. He gets so excited with the mantra that he just wants to get new books. And the, gurus, the guru says to him, that's spiritual gluttony, my son. Stick to the books you have. Stick to the Bible and the Philokalia. That's all you need, you know? So we learn about it in the way of pilgrim. We learn about it in Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, we learn about it from St. John, another empower, em, empowering text, The Dark Night of the Soul. A must read for anyone who is seriously on the path. And in that book, St. John of the Cross also expounds on the spiritual gluttony that we all feel. We want to collect spiritual things as you can see. <laughs> we kind of fall into this like spell of I need more, I don't know, tapestries or, or statues or something. You just kind of fall into this hunger. So the way we usually phrase what we do together is as follows. You desire things in the world. It didn't do it for you. Then you desire things in the spiritual world. It didn't do it for you. And now you're ready for ripe spirituality. So through disappointment, through lack of fulfillment, you come to a genuine quest for spirituality. As Alan Watts very beautifully says, it's the last uh, disappointment of the ego. You know, <laughs> the ego's last great enlightenment is the ego's final disappointment, something like that. Very good statement. So it's like, oh yeah, we're here to learn ordinariness. And you're not going to be interested in learning it until you're finished with extraordinariness, until you're actually finished with trying to be special, you know. And a lot of us aren't yet finished with that. And if not, that's okay. We are where we are on the path. And where we are is exactly where we're meant to be. And there is no rush, you know. But in you, you feel that urgency. So hence, here we are. <laughs> so that's usually how we frame this. But today, let's frame it a little differently. So instead of talking about um, desire and the frustration of desire, instead of talking about craving, God willing, I'd like to talk about the inverse of that, or better yet, the other side of that coin, which is fear. See, we want what we want because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't get them. You know, we're, we want good grades because we're afraid of the consequences of not getting good grades. And we don't really know what those consequences are. 
You know, a lot of the things we fear haven't yet happened to us. Or we fear being homeless. Have you been It hasn't yet happened. And then when it happens, you realize, hey, it's not that bad. You know, it's really not. And then you're worried about being hungry. And then you don't have anything to eat for maybe four or five days. Welcome, Jana. And you're like, actually, it's not that bad. Hunger is not as terrible as I thought it was, you know. And that's partly why a lot of spiritual traditions around the world have such a heavy emphasis on like fasting, on, on renunciation of possessions and celibacy and, and being a monk and, and, and nomadic lifestyle. It's just to show you that the things that you feared aren't worth fearing. There's a tremendous sense of freedom when you encounter all the worst things that can happen to you and you're like, that's not that bad. Okay, but of course, the picture is much more complicated than this because there are people for whom these things happen and it's tremendous suffering, you know? So let's definitely put a disclaimer there. Um, it's only for a few people when they realize, oh, it's actually not that bad. But let's back up a bit. The things that we fear, uh, we haven't yet experienced those consequences, yet something in us creates this gnawing sense of, by all means, I have to prevent that from happening to me. You know, I got to get these grades. I got to get this salary. I need this money. I need this person to like me, et cetera, et cetera. Because if they don't, you know. So on the other side of craving is a great fear. So this fear, you know, this feeling of being threatened is usually how we experience craving. You know, it's kind of like a restlessness, uh, anxiety, uh, to try to get what we want. So we'll propose today that for a lot of people, the uh, resting state, or uh, the resting is a bit of a uh, difficult statement to say, but the, the, the default state, let's say, is one of anxiety. You know, I think Eckhart Tolle says it very nicely, background resentment. I think he says background anxiety or something. You know, if you leave a person in a room for a little while, just watch them for a bit. You know, you'll see there's a tremendous kind of like, you know, uh, very tight. There's a kind of tightness to life. Um, and often we don't even notice this until we realize how tightly we're holding our body. You know, when we come to a yoga class or asana class and someone says, unclench the jaw, suddenly you realize the whole time you are, you know, the jaw is all clenched and we're sitting in a room with people and we feel that age old, you know, 200 BCE kind of like, what if I get exiled from the tribe kind of feeling. And we want them to like us and we want to say the right things and the body is like tight. You know, the breath is short and it's just in the chest. And if you perhaps investigate your day-to-day -day experience of life, we might, a lot of us find, a lot of it is characterized by fear, by anxiety. And it's a very, very subliminal anxiety. It's underlying each thing that we do. You know, remember last week we talked about that story of Shiva, uh, the dancing Shiva, Nataraj and how he had conquered self-preservation, self-propagation, and self-aggrandization, the three motives of the unenlightened state. And we asked, okay, well, why do we act? And if we look closely, we'll notice that prior to the enlightened state, most of our actions, if not all, when properly analyzed, have their roots in self-preservation. You know, We do what we do because we're trying to keep this one alive. Well, isn't that only natural? Well, is it? Is there another way to act? Because this one doesn't seem to be working for us. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs>
So we're here. We, we gravitate towards these books. We gravitate towards these ideas because we sense that there might be another way of living. And to do that, we must radically alter the axioms upon which we have built our reality, or at least the assumptions upon which we have crafted our very elaborate prisons. Now, underneath all of the assumptions, so leave this to the therapist to figure out what our assumptions are, but underneath all of them, you know, the assumption that the only way my mom will love me is if I make this money, or the assumption that if I don't have a home, I will die. Uh, that's a bit dramatic. I wanted to start with a little more like believable ones and work down, but I kind of cut all the way in. But once you peel back, you know, these assumptions like, if I don't have X amount of followers, or if I don't have, if you peel them back, you will realize the fundamental assumption, as indeed we discussed last week, the fundamental assumption we have is that when the body dies, we die. Hmm? That's the fundamental assumption. And beneath that, deeply buried in that is a fear of death. That death is the worst. It's, a, it's like, ah, it's horrible, you know? And hence, we fear torture. We fear all the things that happen to the body. And we crave things for the body. A house or crypt for the body to sit in. You know, car, uh, material comforts. All for the body. And we're so afraid that if this one thing were to come to harm, if it were to, like, end, we would end. You see? So we say in our tradition, abhinivesha, so, the fear of death. The TikTok guy that I was telling you about, he's doing a, this is a live Zoom call right now. <laughs> yes, that's exactly yeah, what it is. that I showed you. Oh, one of them. Okay. Yeah. But that was the first one. No. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, Sarah. Yes, you, you got it. Oh, Correct. I'm it's sorry. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, we're all family here. Don't worry. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, this abhinivesha, this fear of death, when looked at, is all pervading. Fear is all pervading. Everything that we do, there's fear. And that, in a large part, determines our experience of life as this kind of contracted, uh, kind of heavy, burdensome thing, you know, we just can't quite catch a break. Now, imagine what life would be like without that fear. If on all levels of your being, you were completely purged, not just as a concept, but completely purged from all anxiety, from all sense of, oh, this, is, this might happen. You know, if, if all of that was gone, imagine how relaxed, how loving, how spontaneous and how creative life would be. And do you notice children are so vulnerable. They are so stupidly vulnerable, you know, yet... They are so bold. There's a tremendous creativity. It's, it's usually the parents that freak out. You know, I remember I was teaching at the middle school and uh, uh, at the end of the semester, I, I brought this big bushel of roses and I was handing the roses out to the children. And then a mom ran up to me and she's like, Nish, why didn't you cut the thorns off the roses? These roses have thorns. I'm like, roses have thorns, you know? And if the kid pricks the thumb, the kid pricks the thumb. Roses have thorns. And the kids didn't care. They were like holding it. They were sword fighting with it. One kid came up to me and their thumb was pricked and like, yeah, you know, kids don't really care about those injuries. And those of you who have kids, not all of them. Some of them are a bit precious, sorry. But uh, many of them, you know, they'll run and they'll fall and scrape their knees and they have this great sense of joie de vivre. 
Um, and uh, it's only the parents that freak out. So for vulnerable beings like that, how is it that they have such freedom, such relaxation, you know? And even when they freak out, when they have like temper tantrums or whatever, it's 10 minutes, maybe an hour at most. You know, they, they didn't have that ice cream flavor. That day, there was only 31, not 30, is it? No, there was only 30, not 31 at the ice cream shop. And, ah, but then it just goes away. They don't think about it anymore. You know, they're gone with your day. Whereas for us, it's not 31. It's only 30. We think about it for a year. And then two years from now, we re-traumatize ourselves when we drive by the same ice cream shop. <laughs> so there's a kind of feeling when you're a kid where it's like you're a duck and the water just sluices off your feathers, you know? Um, so imagine what it would be like to live with that kind of relaxation, that spontaneity where it's like, ah, no big deal. What would you create? Where would you go? You know, how would you feel day to day if every day you woke up, you didn't wake up like, oh, you know, ah, taxes. You woke up like, cool. <laughs> sure. You know, um, what energy you would have. All the energy that was previously spent in like fearing and protecting and consolidating all got liberated in this wonderful freedom. You know, uh, we used to joke, adults, they, they need an alarm clock to wake up. But kids, if you didn't give them a bedtime, they wouldn't sleep. They'd play and play and play and play. And then when they get tired, they'll like fall for like two minutes and sleep. And they wake up and play and play and play. Destiny, welcome back. Oh, you are so missed. Hello from the farm. <laughs> You know, so lest ye be as little children, yours is not the kingdom of heaven. There's this kind of idea of, of just relaxed spontaneity. So we're going to define the enlightened state today as that on all levels of being, not just for the period of a retreat and not just for the period of a lecture or a period of a book, but as a permanent experience of life, you know, where it's a place um, in which you live, you built your house here, you're established, stithihi we call it, in fearlessness. So the ultimate prayer we can offer in this tradition is, may you be fearless, you know. So we're going to analyze fear now as root cause of fears, the root of all fears in your life, whether it's the fear of not having enough money or whether it's the fear of not having enough followers or love or losing a partner, whatever fear you have, you can trace it back to that fear of death. That's the fundamental fear. And that fear the fear of death is premised on one assumption. And that assumption is, when the body dies, I will die. So, given that, all we need to do is break that assumption. That's the one link in the chain. If we can, on all levels of our body, uh, sorry, being, eliminate or at least analyze or at least replace that one assumption that when the body dies, we will die, we have a really good shot at tumbling the house of cards that is the... Uh, fear prison. So let's try to do that today. And the way I hope to do this, God willing, is on several levels. Uh, first, we'll do it on the level of the intellect. I'll give you maybe four arguments. We've done many of them together before from Jnana Yoga on the level of the intellect to show you why this assumption is manifestly untrue. Your, your own experience of life is all that is needed for this philosophy to work. It's a philosophy premised on just your simple observations of life, you know, of here and right now. Mm. When we do this philosophy, though, um, what it sh ideally, once you learn the new paradigm, you should live by it. You know, it's like, 
imagine if you were driving on the road and you were headed to a destination and you, you know, your phone, like your GPS or whatever, told you hazard up ahead, the road is blocked, take a different route. Would you continue down the same road? I mean, you know that the road is blocked. So knowing that you should alter your course, you know, so hopefully on the level of the intellect today, something can be conveyed, something of the nature. I know that my body, when it dies, I won't die. And that should, from here on out, change the way you approach life. It, it should do that. That's what knowledge should do. And if it's not doing that, it's because you don't yet know. <laughs> and that's a whole, whole other problem. So we'll do it on the level of the intellect. Now, if it doesn't work on the intellect, that's okay. Then we will do it on the level of the mind. So here you might think intellect, mind, aren't they the same? And in our tradition, we actually delineate intellect from the mind. So... When we meditated earlier today, we did a sort of exercise known as the Pancha Kosha Viveka. Uh, what we were doing was looking at the five layers of experience. So uh, very briefly, I'll sketch it out now, and it will help us as a model for our lecture. So the five layers are as follows. On the most superficial is the, and, and, and it is kind of stratified in this way, but in our experience, it might not be. So uh, just Following along with the tradition from the Taitriya Upanishad, the five layers are as followed. The most superficial or the most obvious is sensation in the body. We call this the Annomayo Kosha, the body, the feeling of smelling, tasting, touching, you know. Deeper than that is the Pranomayo Kosha, the energetic dimension of life, which is moods, how excited, uh, ecstatic or excited or tired you might feel, you know. Deeper than that is the Manumayo Kosha, the mental field, which is your thoughts, the realm of, of thinking, of mentality. Deeper than that is Vijnana Mayo Kosha, which is the intellect. And deeper than that is the Ananda Mayo Kosha, which is spaciousness and void. It's like a deep sleep state. And deeper than that is you. So how do we delineate intellect from mind? Very simple. Mind is just thoughts. Intellect might be closer to like the Christian idea of will or something in you, a higher faculty of mind, if you will, that has a discriminating ability. It can look at thoughts and say to thoughts, that's wrong. So you can think of it as a kind of reflexive ability that acts on thoughts. It can bind certain thoughts and say, I'm going to think that. Or it can move away from certain thoughts and say, I'm not going to think that. It's the intellect that decides to meditate. It was your intellect that was responsible for you to come here today for this talk. And it is your intellect that will debate this intellect. You know, the mind is shared between us. It's like a pool of thoughts. And the intellect is making sense of all of this. So we call this the buddhi or the discriminating mind. Yes, beautiful destiny. Awesome. <laughs> Okay, so deeper than all of that is spaciousness. So hopefully today when you started uh, meditating, you could feel, okay, there was the smells and taste. And then there were the emotions, how I feel about all of this, the emotional <laughs> texture, the energetic quality of this. And then deeper than that, it's not actually true, really, to say emotions are prana. Emotions are more manas, more mind. But you know what I mean, energetic, how it feels to be in this moment. Deeper than that is thoughts. How, how, uh, what thoughts are coming about what I'm smelling, what I'm feeling. And then deeper than that is the intellect, the kind of value judgments placed upon those thoughts. And deeper than that is a kind of spaciousness, 
that feeling of a smell coming out of nothing and going back into nothing, you know. Uh, don't worry about this so much. The lecture isn't really yogic anatomy. I just wanted to sketch this model because it's necessary for our project. So if we are to root out fear, it is necessary to root it out on all these levels. Because if you only root it out on the level of the intellect, it will continue. It will persist perhaps on the level of energy or the level of the body or the level of thoughts, you know? So after we do the intellect, we'll do the mind. And the mind is all meditation. Meditation is the realm of the mind. And then after that, we'll do body and energy, which is all Hatha Yoga. And after that, my personal favorite, we'll do the heart. Because it is humbly my proposition that the battlefield, the Kurukshetra war of, of fear is fought in the heart, not really in the mind. You know, There are many people who can write entire books on what I'm about to tell you in a few moments, God willing, who live incredibly fearful lives. You know, it just doesn't add up. They know all this Vedanta, yet they're hoarders. <laughs> they uh, are obsessed with savings accounts. Uh, they're really worried about uh, losing their loved ones. Like, what? And, and that should show you there's often a disjunct between what you think you know and where you really are in your spiritual practice. So we'll end today with a kind of hurrah for the heart in its venture away from fear and towards love. And finally, we'll end with fear doesn't exist. It's actually only love. All right, so that's where we're going. Let's start. We'll start with the intellect. So on the level of the intellect, four distinct arguments for you and then a practice. So the first argument is this, remembering that our project, by and large today, our project is to challenge the assumption that when the body dies, I die. That's our project. So the first argument is this. It's called in philosophy, the hard problem of matter. You know, we've talked about it before, but just to revisit. So the hard problem of matter is as follows. We live in a time enmeshed or mired in a certain faith. They don't like to call it a faith, but make no mistake, that's exactly what it is. It is the faith that matter exists. <laughs> We call this either materialism to be kind or naive realism to be real. <laughs> but this is a good Google, naive realism. But naive realism is the phenomena whereby you take things to be real that you can touch. So you can imagine a long time ago, philosophers like Aristotle, when asked what was this universe made of, uh, they would say, well, if I tap this table, it's solid. It's more solid than Plato's forms, you know. Plato's like, there are these archetypical things called forms or ideas. And those are the things that build the universe. And, and, and Aristotle's like, you know, a little more grounded than that. A little more Western scientific mind. He's like, yeah, Plato, I know you got those ideas from those dirty Egyptians. Every time you went down to the Eleusinian mystery schools, like, that's a bit weird. It's a bit oriental. We don't like it. Let's do like this kind of, mm, you know. Uh, tables are real. Uh, maybe not tables, but trees. He would say trees and rocks. This Aristotle called a substance. So a substance is the basic Lego block that we use to build the universe. You know, And many philosophers like Leibniz and Spinoza and all these great philosophers were really interested in finding out on a metaphysical level what the universe was made of. 
what is a substance? So our dominant paradigm as a culture here in the West, and in fact everywhere in the world, is matter is the substance. The universe is made of stuff. It's called matter. But look what happens. When you study matter, you realize almost immediately that things aren't as solid as you take them to be. What you thought was a solid, discrete object called rock was actually made up of smaller, discrete objects called atoms. Now, granted, atoms were an idea that were around during the early Greek philosophers, but it only really got kind of mainstream when this gentleman Dalton, um, John or some other Dalton, uh, was it John Dalton? Dalton created a concept known as the atomic theory. And the idea is that everything is made of atoms. And when you take a few big balls and a few small balls, it's a good model because you can show how the salt disappears in the water. You can show how solids are different from water and how, uh, liquids and how liquids are different from gas. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, Anthony. Anthony says, the consequence of Aristotle's naive realism was Alexander the Great's weeping when he had no more material world to conquer. And Aristotle was uh, the teacher of, of Alexander the Great and also the teacher of his father, King Philip of Macedon. So anyway, um, it seems like we have a good model. Atoms. The world is made of atoms. Simple enough, right? But no one has ever seen atoms. Now, this is a belief. It's a model. It's a model for what the table is made of. Granted, it's a good model because it can, it can explain certain phenomena that we do see, like the salt disappearing in the water, etc. Uh, it does explain to some extent why uh, liquids are different from gases and why gases can go into liquids and liquids can go into solid solids. This idea of atoms and lattices and all that. Fine and good. But then when another scientist, Ernest Rutherford, started to shoot alpha particles at said matter, he found that it was mostly empty space. He found that when shooting at a, a, a sheet of aluminum or something, uh, most of the alpha particles just went right through. And he started to get very scared. You can imagine, I believe this sheet of aluminum foil to be real. But every time I send a, a particle into it, it goes out the other end. There's no deflection. You would expect it, a solid particle to hit another particle and deflect. But that wasn't happening. Everywhere was just empty space. And that was kind of startling, you know. Thankfully, a lab assistant, not even Rutherford, but a lab assistant saw a discrepancy in the data. So there were reams and reams of data. Most of it showed a lack of deflection, but somewhere in there, there was a deflection. And matter was saved. Whoo, thank God we can sleep at night, you know? While it is mostly empty space, in the middle of each atom, there was a thing called the nucleus. And it just had all the information known as matter. It's, it had the charges and it had the, you know, whatever. But now look what's going on. You know, Niels Bohr showed us how electrons move, but now in quantum mechanics, that model's out the window. We have what we call uh, the bicycle theory or um, probability clouds, where the best scientists can do today regarding electrons is to posit them as regions of probability. So they've dispensed the idea that electrons are things. They are just probabilities, you know? And that's a very scary idea. So in modern quantum mechanics, you have these diagrams, like S diagrams and P diagrams. They're kind of cool to look at, kind of trippy. But these diagrams don't show you electrons. They just show you where electrons might be. What's scarier is that quantum mechanics believes all the electrons to be all of the places and none of the places at the same time. <laughs> so it seems like uh, matter is becoming less and less material. 
And we call this the hard problem of matter. We know what matter does, but we don't know what matter is. The more we look for matter, the more it runs away from us. We get quarks and muons and it's, it's all just running away and, and we're trying to catch on to it. But we're floundering. And there are some terrible paradoxes, you know, like the wave particle paradox. How is it that a photon of light can behave both like a particle and like a wave? How is it that the observation of said phenomena changes based on the observer, double slit experiment? All of that shows us that the church of matter is in trouble, you know. Now, what does this create for us? Yes, it creates the Alexander the Great problem, but it creates for us something very sinister. Because if we believe that matter is real, if we believe that matter comes first, then we will necessarily believe that the body precedes consciousness, that consciousness emerges from the body, notably the brain. So most of us think this, right? Most of us think, uh, our brain produces consciousness. And we use language like my consciousness. What? Who is the my? You know, how can consciousness be an object? If it is, who is the consciousness speaking about it? You know, so uh, we use language like this, my consciousness. So we're trying to define consciousness. And neuroscience is trapped because nobody can agree on a definition for consciousness. Because everybody is acting like it's an object like it's an emergent property of the brain. Now, if you buy into this, this is what will occur. There will be the implicit threat of death as the end of body. Naturally, when the body dies, the brain stops and you stop, right? All right. If I uh, freeze, I hope I'll come back, God willing. And if I get kicked from the meeting, don't worry. I hope to come back <laughs> or not. And that'll be okay too. <laughs> Fabricio will take over. Claire will take over. <laughs> okay. So uh, <laughs> uh, how about now? Am I back? Okay. So mana, uh, I'll say that again. The statement was, and it bears repeating. If you believe that matter is real. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> if you believe that matter is real, uh, and matter precedes consciousness, then you will believe that the body, by virtue of the brain, produces you. You are the offspring of the brain. You are nothing more than electrical signals in the brain. And necessarily, there is a great fear there. Because you fear that the end of the body, and you'd be right to fear this, the end of the body would be the end of you, the personality, your idea of life. But, here are the problems with this way of, of seeing the world. One, the hard problem of matter. How can we say that matter comes first when we don't even really know what it is? You know, matter uh, seems to be less and less material. So it's kind of dodgy to suppose that it's the substance. Maybe we can do better. Maybe we can find a more real substance. And in fact, we can. So that's the first problem. Um, the second problem is what we call the hard problem of consciousness. So these are great breakthroughs in uh, philosophy and neuroscience. Hard Problem of Matter by Strawson, who is a philosopher. Hard Problem of Consciousness uh, by a neuroscientist, David Chalmers, who is also a philosopher. I think at a, uh, he's at, um, I forget, he's in New York now, I think one of the universities there. Good one, I forget. Uh, but he, he's a good, good neuroscientist, and he has this paper out called The Hard Problem of Consciousness, in which he proposes a beautiful idea. We cannot identify a thought. 
The best we can do is electrical synapses firing. But that doesn't explain anything. It doesn't explain why we perceive the way we do. It doesn't show a thought. It doesn't show an emotion. It seems like interior life, the experience of being a human, eludes our scientific instruments. We can identify physical things about the body, but not about the mind. You know, we can talk about the brain, but not really about the mind. And for as many Phineas gaugers as we have, we have the opposite cases too. You know, it's a very peculiar thing. There's obviously a relationship, but there isn't a reduction between the two. Um, that's been difficult. We're trying our best in science to reduce consciousness to the body uh, because we believe in matter, but we are very really at a, at a dead end here. You know, so hard problem of matter and hard problem of consciousness shows you one thing that matter is not a good candidate for substance. Its explanatory power is very limited. Now let's look at the reverse. Let's look at the opposite. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Chalmers panpsychism. And, and, and it's, it's true for Priscilla. It's one step away from saying that the chair is suffering. Rupert Spira likes to talk about the panpsychism a lot. One of the modern non-dual teachers. But yeah, so um, it seems like, what about the opposite theory? You know, um, what if instead of saying matter produces awareness, what if we said awareness produces matter? And in fact, this seems to stand up to reason a little better. Now, let's demonstrate. Can you show the existence of an object apart from awareness? And if you say yes, show me. You won't be able to. Because everything you can point to is in your awareness. Even the things that you posit, like a distant star that you cannot see, is in your awareness. You know, don't confuse perception with awareness. The very fact that you are positing the existence of a star that you do not yet perceive is evidence that that star is in awareness. You know, you cannot show independently an object without the subject. It's a very subtle point here. And it's a very important point because it shows us that without a subject, there cannot be an object. So how can you propose objects, matter, as the substance, when clearly there is no evidence in your experience, there is no provable evidence that anything exists apart from the one who is perceiving it, being aware of it, you know? Do you see the force of that? At the very least, you must conclude that object and subject are in some inextricable relationship, where one is, the other must be. And that's profound idea. Already we have a lot to work with. We can show this even more clearly. And take this copper bottle. We do this a lot. Now, you, you might not, right now, you might not have a concept yet in your mind about Ayurvedic copper water bottles. A lot of us don't know what that is. We know what water bottles are. We don't really know Ayurvedic. What, what is that? You know? And then I show you. I'm like, look, this is an Ayurvedic copper water bottle. This lecture brought to you by Ayurveda. <laughs> I show you a thing. And now I have added in your worldview a concept. What is your world but a string of concepts? Is the world, uh, like how color is produced, uh, Lyric asks, like how color is produced in our minds and doesn't exist intrinsically from light hitting the eye and being translated to color? Exactly. You know, the idea that the yogis of old were propounding, proposing, was that um, perception is inside. You're not seeing something out there. There might be something out there. The yogis certainly believed that. In Sankhya, they believed there was something out there. It's just that the thing that you see is in here. 
And it's really more the case of what you're bringing into it than what's actually there. Exactly, exactly. So look at this, this, this one concept that your world is concepts. In fact, the Norse word world or verald literally means man world. So it implies that the world is not what is there. It's just what's there for you. And we all live in different worlds, so to speak. You know, a golfer lives in a different world because a golfer, when driving down the street, notices golf things like a golf shop or ads for golf lawns or something. But because you're not a golfer, that's not in your world, you know. Uh, and so you drive down the same street, but it's very literally a different street for you. The things you notice in that street are different. So what is the world but a series of concepts? When you travel, when you meet new people, you feel like your world is expanding. And that's a wonderful thing. But what is really expanding? Is it not just your concepts? When you meet new people, when you travel to new places, when you come and listen to drunken monkeys like this talk at you, uh, are you not just increasing in concepts? And then there's a feeling of the world improving. So... Given that the world is concepts, and I know I'm kind of going through these philosophies rather quickly, uh, you know, each one deserves a lecture onto itself, um, but I do have a lot to get through, uh, God willing, I will. And at the end of the lecture, if any one of these points isn't immediately clear to you, ask me about it and we'll, we'll, we'll flesh it out, you know, uh, because all of this can be proven here right now in your experience. It should never be taken on faith. You should never believe a word I say. You know, it should all be immediately apparent because remember, enlightenment is a fact. You can't buy it from me. It's got no price tag. You know, it's not something anybody can hustle you with. <laughs> so um, do do maybe write like in the, ch not in the chat because it does disappear, but note down any one place where it didn't quite sound clear and we'll expound. But for now, the proposition is this. The world is concepts. It's nothing but concepts. So you must ask the question, what is the essence of a concept? What are concepts made of? So let's take this experiment. Ayurvedic copper water bottle. You have the concept now, hopefully, of Ayurvedic copper water bottle. You know that the concept maps on to this thing, this object. And this object is defined by its texture, by its sound, by its shape, you know, uh, by its color. And that produces the concept Ayurvedic copper water bottle. So you can think of it this way. The concepts emerge from sense events. Sense events give you concepts. Without the sense event, you wouldn't have the concept. Therefore, sense events are the essence of a concept. Essence being that which cannot be dispensed with. It is the very definition of the thing. So let's experiment. Together we can do an experiment. So if you say there is such a thing as Ayurvedic copper water bottle, that is, there is such a thing as a concept independent of this thing, this touch, this color, let's look. Where is it? Is there right now the existence of such a thing known as the concept Ayurvedic copper water bottle apart from the sense events? And you might say, yes, there is. It's in memory. I remember that. Yeah, but what's memory worth, right? Uh, you know, the loft bus experiments? There's these, these loft bus paradigm experiments, which are great experiments in uh, psychology, modern psychology, showing us how undependable memories are. Are they not so dreamlike? 
So don't use memory. That's a kind of faith too. Don't just believe it because someone told you so. Interact here and now with your own experience of life. It seems like when I take away the sense data, there is no longer the object known as concept. So this is all we're trying to say. Concepts depend on sensation. Without sensation, no concept. So your world, Loftus, thank you, Douglas, Loftus. Loftus is something else. Loftus, yes. Hmm. Loftus. So um, what then is the essence of sensation? In other words, what is the one thing that you need in order to have sensation? Obviously, sense organs. So if I close my eyes and stop touching the bottle, it's gone. It exists for me only in memory and only as a concept, but in experience, it's gone. Almost lotus, yes, Fabricio. <laughs> so it seems like all concepts depend on sense data. And all sense data depends on the sensor, the organ of perception. What does that depend on? That depends on awareness. Because if there wasn't some awareness here to be aware of that sensation, it doesn't matter how many eyes I had. doesn't matter how many bottles I had. I would never have the experience Ayurvedic copper water bottle. Do you see? It's a powerful idea of asking, what is this world made of? Well, it's made of you. Because without you, it wouldn't be. Can you show it to be otherwise? Never. You will never be able to prove uh, inexperience. You'll never be able to prove beyond a concept that the world exists apart from your being aware of it. And I'm, I'm talking about you, you know, like the, the individual that I'm talking to right now. It's not like the hypothetical you, the you right here. You know, look into your own experience and see this to be true. Recognize simply that without awareness, there wouldn't be sense organs. Without sense organs, there wouldn't be objects of sensation. Without objects of sensation, there wouldn't be a world of concepts. And if the world is nothing but concepts, then the world depends on you. And every night, you dissolve it. It does not exist for you. Maybe people take photos of your body sleeping and they're like, but you were there. And you're like, no, in my experience, I wasn't. And now you're showing me a picture and that's still in my awareness or oh, error in me. You know, it's not your awareness. It's, it's you awareness. Okay. So this hopefully is a convincing argument on an intellectual level, on a philosophical level, showing you that awareness is a much better candidate for substance than matter. Why does this matter? Why do we care? Why does this matter? Why do we care? Uh, simply because of this. If you are convinced on a level, on just an intellectual level for now, if you are convinced that truly uh, awareness produced the body and the body produced the sense events and the sense events produced the world, then how do you, why would you think that the end of the body is the end of you? You know, since you are the one that created the body, the body is not the one that created you. That's a powerful kind of thing to feel into. So, uh, another argument now. This one's even more powerful. And it deals with your experience a little more intimately. So follow this closely. What is a body? You know, earlier we said, what is a world? We said it's just concepts. What is a body? You know, what, what is it to have a body? Oh, we see the mirror and we see pictures, but those are just concepts. In your experience now, what is it to have a body? And it seems like, it, humbly proposing this, it seems like the body is nothing more than moment-to-moment -moment 
sense events. Yes, Claire, there's a funny joke. The purpose of the body is to ferry you to the shores of enlightenment. Once there, what use does it have? (laughs) But yeah, it's a useful tool. But right now, you can feel the body. And what that means is you're noticing sensation as they come and as they go. So humbly, I'd like to propose that the body is nothing but moment-to-moment sense events. Now it's the pain in the hip, then it's the taste of tea, then it's the feeling of like ache, or then it's the feeling of pleasure. Before you did asana, some of you didn't even know you had hamstrings. And then you did asana and you felt them. You see, hamstrings were just a concept, but it wasn't until you stretched them and you woke up the next day cursing the drunken monkey who taught you that pose. Uh, Then you're like, oh, I have this part of my body. I can feel my inner groin. I didn't know I had those. I can feel my, you know, it's like asana gives you more of your body. But then you realize, oh, where was it before? And the answer was, uh, it doesn't exist for you except on the level of sensation. So if the body is sensation, I know this is a big statement to make, and we should digest it for a little bit. The body is nothing but moment-to-moment sensation. Yeah, Amanda, you're always welcome. (laughs) Now, if you buy this, if you buy the body is nothing but a moment-to-moment sensation, what do you know about sensations? You know that they come and go, but you also know that you don't end when they end. You see? You know that every sensation comes and goes. This is so easy to experiment. Drink some tea, you know, take a sip. Or smell your incense. And it's immediately apparent that a sensation emerges somehow. It emerges. It stays around for a little while. We call this shristi, creation of sensation. Stittihi, the maintenance. And finally, samhara, it disappears. So sensation comes, stays, and goes. Every sensation goes. If the body is a sensation, what does that tell you about the body? It comes, stays, and goes. (laughs) Is that not obvious in our experience? Bodies come into being, they stick around for a little while, and then they go. They, of course, being but sensations. But what else do you know? You know from just sipping your tea alone that when the sensation ended, you didn't end. You were ready for the next sensation. So if the body is nothing but sensation, and if your mind persists beyond the end of each sensation, then isn't it likely that your mind will persist beyond the death of this body? Uh, That's what your data tells you. (laughs) Yeah, Anthony says, what's data? Never mind. What is matter? No matter. (laughs) What is matter? Never mind. What is mind? No matter. (laughs) Anthony with the quips. Anthony and Fabricio should make a little joke book for us. So this is, this is enough to show you once and for all that what the body is really in your experience is sensation and sensation always comes, it always goes and it always leaves you intact for the next one. In here, there's a little bit of a reincarnation argument, but we won't go there today. We already did that. So it's enough to do this, to just say, let's exchange on an, just a level of the intellect. Let's exchange our concepts of matter for awareness. Awareness is the building block of the world. And that seems to be uh, more in line with your actual experience, you know, unless you're still attached to concepts. You know, we say the only people who cannot feel into the truth of this statement are those who are still attached to the concept that, you know, like, and, and that's dogma, right? The idea that we just cannot interact with our experience because we have a preconceived notions how, how, of how things have to be, you know? So all the philosophy we do 
Our data is here and now. But this is a tall order for some people, right? A lot of people don't yet have the ability to observe the moment because they're still enmeshed in their mind. There are too many thoughts. So the arguments I've just given you are called jnana yoga. Yeah, karma ran over my dogma. Exactly, Anthony. We are bigoted un- until suffering forces us out of that. So jnana yoga, which what we just did, the yoga of philosophy. And you know, there's a lot more. There's like drigdrishya viveka, panchakosha viveka. There's the dreamer, the waker, the deep sleep. Uh, so many arguments, uh, but I won't do them today because we have more to talk about. And we're not really doing Advaita which is my love. Uh, and there are many lectures on, on Patreon, all there like for, for those, le- for those uh, specific arguments. And of course, after the talk, please stay around. We'll do them. I will happily do Drigdrisha Viveka with you again um, and show you over and over and over the same point through different language. You know, how you are not the body. You are not the mind. And so you shouldn't fear the end of the body and the end of the mind, whatever. For now, this is enough. This is enough for us to feel on an intellectual level that the body does not produce consciousness and therefore you shouldn't worry about the end of the body as the end of you. If instead we accept that awareness produces the body and if we accept that the body is nothing but moment-to-moment sensation, we realize that since we survived every other sensation, we'll survive the end of this sensation too. So on an intellectual level, you should be free of the fear of death. Now, let's say this hasn't happened. So here's the practice, okay? On Jnana Yoga, the practice is very simple. Shravana, you hear the teachings. You just hear about it. You're exposed to the teachings. Then Mananas, you think about the teachings. You contemplate it with light of your own experience of life. You analyze the teachings. You debate. You debate with the teacher like, hey, you said I'm not the body, but why do I feel pain, you know? Uh, You said everything's an awareness, but why do I feel like I'm over here and not over there? All great questions, and that's mananas. And then once you shravana, once you mananas, eventually something will happen. It's called nididhyasana. It means internalization. If you continue to immerse yourself in these ideas, if you continue to think through them, if you continue to remember them, especially in your times of suffering like we talked about last week, then they will flower all on their own into the full bloom of enlightenment. But there's a caveat. Jnana yoga is not for beginners. You see, Jnana yoga, the direct path, cannot be utilized sufficiently by those lacking in the fourfold qualifications. So there's a fine print actually. In Jnana yoga, you might notice two things. One, I don't understand the arguments. I heard them all, dude. I heard all the arguments. I heard them many times. I just don't get them. Or you might find I really get them. Or I super get them. I can write books about them. But they don't change your life. Why? Why is it that an intellectual understanding is not enough? That's because you received the intellectual understanding prematurely. Recognize that these teachings, these teachings of Advaita Vedanta are very inner teachings. They're very secret teachings and they're offered only to the most advanced of disciples. If offered to any like regular beginner, they can actually become hindrances. They can become ego trips. Oh, God is the creator of the universe. Awareness is the creator of the universe. I am God. (laughs) And yes, that's true. But I, in the sense of Jesus the Christ, I, you know, the sense of I beyond the personality, not Nish, you know, (laughs) a deeper I, 
pure consciousness, not reflected consciousness. So we don't give jnana yoga often to people who are just starting on the path. In fact, we say in order to utilize jnana yoga sufficiently, there's the ascent from the animals in the room. It's a frog. In order to utilize jnana yoga sufficiently, you must have the fourfold qualifications. The first is uh, viveka, discernment. You must be able to discern the real from the unreal. Then you must have, um, apart from that, vairagya, uh, renouncing of the unreal, intense detachment for that which is unreal. Then you must have mumukshutvam, intense desire for liberation. Then you have something known as the shat sampatis, which are like an additional six. You say there are four things that you need, and then the last one has an asterisk, and it's actually six. And the six are very fierce. Dhamma, sama, titiksha. It's basically a long list of virtues, like uh, tranquility of mind, peace in the heart, spiritual fortitude, the ability to endure great difficulty in the name of spirit. And you're like, what the? Dude, I'm practicing to get all those things. And now you're telling me that I need all those things in order to practice? Yes. Jnana Yoga says, in order to sufficiently benefit from Jnana Yoga, (laughs) from the path of knowledge, you need to come into it equipped already with all these spiritual virtues. That is actually the reason, perhaps, for why a lot of us are stuck in non-duality. Because we came into it prematurely. We read our Ramana, we read our Nisargadatta, we listened to all the lectures from Chinmayanda. We, we listened to all of it, and we can write books about it, but it hasn't changed the grief in our heart. And that's because we haven't yet developed, first and foremost, the Shat Sampatis. I won't read the list to you. It's, it's as complicated as it sounds. We haven't yet achieved mumukshutvam. The, the fourth, Theresa, so these are the four. The first is uh, viveka. Viveka is discernment between, actually discernment between the real and the unreal. We're like, what? You know? Then vairagya, intent. Then, mumuk shutvam, intense desire for liberation. And finally, the fourth is the shat sampatis, which mean six extra things. <laughs> what a con, right? What a prank. Ashton Kutcher jumps out and he's like, punked, you know? Um, so you learn all this non-duality only to realize you weren't qualified for the teaching. And, and that's okay. No, nothing personal. It's just not where we are yet in our spiritual life, to be able to benefit from what we call the direct method, aparoksha jnana, the ability to just, and you know what, for some people, this teaching is all you need. Just one time passing through this teaching, you're permanently free. But it takes a lot of spiritual discipline. So now that we've talked on the level of the intellect, you might have questions. You might be like, I don't get this. It's, it's going over my head. Or you might be like, I get this. So what? It hasn't changed my experience. Now we must go to the level of the mind. So we say in the jnana yoga tradition, if jnana hasn't worked, it's because you're lacking in meditation. (laughs) So now let's go to the mind. The mind is about uh, meditation. And the Buddha knew this. So the Buddha, remember, uh, the Shakya Muni Buddha, above all was a jnani. He was a, a philosopher. He was a jnana yogi. 
You know, he was someone who had philosophical insights into the nature of reality and spent a lot of time teaching those insights in long, like seven hour lectures, right? The Buddha was very verbose. So the Buddha wasn't like, just meditate, bro. No, he used to lecture a lot. But he always told people these lectures require a solid foundation in meditation. And meditation will produce for you what is known as shamatha, which means tranquil mind. So in the Buddhist tradition, meditation is the practice par excellence. There are entire texts like the Anapanasati devoted to how to meditate. There are vipassana retreats. And vipassana, by the way, means insight. So when you go to a vipassana or vipassana retreat, when you study the Anapanasati, when you meditate, what you're doing is you're preparing the mind for jnana. As you meditate, your mind starts to become purer and purer, and you are more and more able to interact with the moment as it is. You see, a lot of us are trapped in our world of concepts. We cannot even see the table that's there in front of us because we're trapped behind a smokescreen of concepts. We don't see the table. Why? We're thinking about, uh, what about rent? Or what about, I got to do this theater production tomorrow. I got to write the script for it. You see, we have all this stuff. And all this stuff is keeping us from seeing what's here right now. And what's here right now? Insight. Enlightenment. So the Buddha argues, if you meditate, if you work at it every day, eventually you will acquire a kind of stability, lucidity, and clarity of mind that will prepare you for this teaching. What do you need in Buddhism? Insight. You don't need meditation. You need insight. But how do you get insight? Meditation. So if you go to Vipassana retreat and you ask too many questions, they won't answer you. They'll tell you to go sit and practice. If you ask the Buddha too many speculative questions, what will he say to you? Most of all, he'll probably be silent. But if he had to speak, he would say, you are like someone who got shot by an arrow who came to a doctor. Before the doctor pulls out the arrow, you say to the doctor, wait, 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 I have a few questions for you. How was I shot by the poison arrow? What angle did it pierce my flesh? What was the nature of the archer who shot me? What was the motivation there? And how many hours do I have left before the poison kills me? How will the poison kill me? Will it be painful? All of this is mind stuff and has nothing to do with pulling the arrow out. And in fact, in your speculation, you will die. Yeah, because you're attached to the arrow. You're attached to your suffering. In fact, you probably like being on the operation table. How special. I got shot. Look, everyone's looking at me. Yay, you know? Suffering is great. Everyone gives me attention. So the Buddha is like, get over yourself. Get over your suffering. Let me pull the arrow out. And so that's why the Buddha, peace and blessings be upon him, would speak against speculation. He, he, but he was still very verbose. So he gave a lot of philosophy only to, to be means to an end. And the ends, of course... Actually, give me a second. Babe, can you turn on the light for me? It's pretty dark. This one. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yes, it's got, it got kind of dark. But uh, the meditation is a means to an end. And those ends are insight. So if you can have the insight without the meditation, sure, sure. But the Buddha recognized that most of the people who were looking for insight lacked. Okay, that light did nothing, but it's okay. Lacked. <laughs> Thanks. It's cute. <laughs> the, the meditation. <laughs> Thank you. The meditation, like they weren't meditated enough. Their minds lacked the lucidity for the insight. So there was no point continuing to waste breath. Just go and meditate. 
you know? So the Buddha knew about these fourfold qualifications. And he knew that most of the people looking for insight into namely three things. One, that everything is suffering. Two, that everything is void. Three, that there is no such thing as the self in the body or the mind or apart from the body or the mind. Anatman. And also there's an additional one, which is the causal interdependence of all things. Like these are insights. And the Buddha did teach these insights, but they wouldn't be true unless they were true for you. And they could only be true for you if you had purified your mind enough in order to see it, you know. So hence, meditation is indispensable for eliminating fear on the level of the mind. Because on the level of the mind, what is fear? And, and let me back up. On the level of intellect, fear is unexamined assumptions. Fear is a wrong philosophy. Fear is an incorrect or ignorant, I don't want to say ignorant, that's harsh, but an erroneous approach to life. Uh, and great question, Hrithik. What do you mean by purifying your mind? Meditation, whatever shape or form it takes, is merely the practice of sitting and glimpsing beyond your thinking mind. So right now, there are thoughts. And in fact, most of our life is thoughts. It's a constant stream of thoughts. It's one thought followed by another, followed by another, and then that thought takes us to another realm of thoughts and we follow each thought train until we crash and then there's a new thought train and we're just trapped and then we realize the thoughts that we thunk yesterday are the same thoughts that we're thinking today the same thoughts that we will think tomorrow you know many modern psychologists talk about the repetitive nature of the mind we recycle thoughts so we find ourselves mired in this pattern samsara dare we say this cyclical thinking where i think one thing gives me this. I think this thing, it gives me this. I think that it gives me this. And eventually I come back to this. <laughs> so we're just spinning around like a dog chasing its own tail. In the Norse mythology, there's the Ouroboros, right? The snake eating its tail. And when Odin figures out enlightenment, the snake lets go of the tail. You know, the idea is that it all comes apart once we are managed to see through it, so to speak. And Od Odin like loses an eye or all that. He goes through this journey for enlightenment or knowledge and he has to close his eyes in order to... It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. But whether it's the Norse mythology, whether it's Buddhism, Hrithik, your question is great. How does one purify the mind? And the answer is this. Any practice that you can do that repetitively, consistently, and powerfully disrupts your unconscious mechanical patterns is meditation. Formal meditation is perhaps indispensable in this regard because it is the practice of sitting down, looking at your thoughts, and then realizing that you are not the thoughts. Then the mind purifies itself. So Hrithik, actually, one cannot purify the mind. The nature of the mind is to think. It is a mistake to try to do anything with the mind. In fact, one just has to sit and let the mind ramble on, and one realizes immediately that they are actually apart from the mind. They are not in the mind. So for those of you interested in this technique, uh, I highly recommend The Mind Illuminated by uh, Chula Dasa or John Yates. And it's, it's a great introductory manual to meditation. It's pretty thick. It's kind of a thick book. It's right here. And uh, 
it's kind of like an introductory text for anapanasati or or a Buddhist vipassana style meditation. And then once you you know have worked with this text, then you can graduate towards the Buddhist sources, like primary sources, like the anapanasati or asanga. So basically, this is asanga's nine nine levels. So for those of you in the like Buddhist school, you might know asanga or a songkapa or all these great Buddhists. Uh, and this guy kind of explores that, um, and you get all those cute cute pictures and metaphors and it's a great book. So if you're interested in meditation, we can't really talk about it. Remember, meditation is something you do. If you want to talk to, to, to this boy about jnana, we can talk all night. That's on the level of the intellect, right? But on the level of the mind, it's just thoughts. If I say anything, it's just more thoughts. Uh, and meditation is about looking between the thoughts to the spaciousness beyond them. Even the poet Rumi sings, peace and blessings be upon him, Beyond your notions of good or bad, there is a field. Meet me there. <laughs> so you see, meditation is something you do. It's not something you talk about. It is something you study, and it is a practice. So for those of you today who decide to meditate, you're going to suck at it. I'm just going to say that up front. You will suck at it. Maybe not. Some of you have really great karma. Uh, your adhikara, your spiritual level is really high. Your naturals. But it's very tempting, you know, when you meditate to think that you cannot meditate. Oh, my mind, my mind is so particularly noisy. I am so ADD that I can't meditate. Other people can, but I can't. I am like somehow special. I can't meditate. Dude, that's everyone. Anybody who starts meditating realizes they suck at meditating. It's a practice. It's not something that you do in the first sit. It's something that you must do every single day for increasing amounts of time with increasing amount of intensity. It's something that you must respect and pay attention to in terms of technique. You must learn the technique. You must learn what to do when your mind wanders. You must learn the emotional states like how to celebrate waking up. You must learn to use tools like uh, mala beads, uh, like mantras. You must learn the techniques and then you'll be able to do it. In one month, you'll be a great meditator. If only you would do it every day, you know. Is it the nature of sedimentation, like particles exactly? And that's one of the best metaphors of meditation. It's not something you do, it's something you allow. When Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came to the US in the 60s, he taught meditation with this framework the mind naturally moves towards easefulness and peace. It's only we who are getting in the way. Meditation is something that happens spontaneously. So in Anapanasati, you will see the Buddha say things like, I thought the mind was a rhinoceros. The more I wrestled it, the more I lost, and I got scraped through the mud. Instead, I let the rhinoceros roam, and it quieted down on itself, on its own self. So as Fabricio says in the chat, this is a great metaphor. The mind is like a whirlpool. And there's sedimentation and particles and mud and it's all unclear. When you meditate, all you're doing is sitting, breathing softly, just allowing that sedimentation to settle. And it will get kicked up again. You know, you'll notice these moments of lucidity where the sedimentation is settling and then it gets <laughs> kicked up again. And over and over you're working and one day the sediment settles enough and you achieve shamatha. What happens? Shamatha is when all the sediments settle, the water is clear and you catch a reflection of the sky. What is the sky? Jnana, intellect. Uh, the sky is insight. 
So in order to have insight, the lake of your mind must be so pure and so reflective that the insight will impress upon you its insight. Otherwise, it will just be more confusing for you. It will just be another thought in that matrix of thought. So let's go back to our lecture about fear. Having understood what meditation is, having understood that the nature of the mind is to unconsciously and mechanically and repetitively conjure up thoughts, what is fear but repetitive thought patterns? You know, we fear that we're going to, uh, like we fear not getting a good grade because we're afraid that if we don't, our parents won't love us. And we're afraid of that because another thought or a memory of what mom said to us when we were four, you know, uh, and it's all this repetitive cycle of thoughts. So if fear is a prison house of thoughts, then the solution to that is to meditate because that takes you outside of thoughts for a moment. You see? So how do we address fear on an, uh, a mind level, on the level of the manas? You meditate. Meditation is the practice for the mind. And what is meditation? It's disrupting the unconscious, repetitive, and mechanical cycles of, of, of thought. You know? And it's up to you what style of meditation you choose. You just have to do it consistently with a proper teacher, with technique. And it's, it's, very, it's actually quite easy to do. In fact, it's the easiest, most natural thing you can do. Uh, one final joke here before we move on. I forget who this joke is by, uh, but someone once said, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> I think it's a Vipassana joke. Don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> and you know, you'll have a journey with it. A lot of you will start to meditate and you'll feel selfish. Like, oh no, who am I to take this time away from my kids, my my partner, my life. Shouldn't I be working on my project? Shouldn't I be making money? Fear, 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 fear. There's a lot of fear around even meditating. You know, so to even start a practice is an act of tremendous bravery. What gets you on the mat? Your intellect. Hopefully your intellect by now is convinced that meditation is a way out of fear. And so your intellect will be the will, it'll be the driving force that gets you on the mat. And you must go to the mat every single day. Like we discussed two lectures ago, the greatest, one of the greatest obstacles to your own spiritual maturity, apart from seeking, one of the greatest obstacles is inconsistency. It's not doing it every day. You have to, you know, because if you even take a break for one day, and of course, don't be hard on yourself. It does happen. But if you even take a break for one day, you will lose your foothold outside of that repetitive thought pattern. It's really strong. The momentum is so strong that if you don't regularly step out of it, you'll just be drawn back into it again and again, sometimes for years before you wake up again. You know? Exactly. And Teresa, don't worry. There's no rush. You can always get back to it. You know? But every time you go back, resolve to stick to it every day. You know? And, and we discussed last week how to stay consistent. You know, find a sangha. Find a group of people who can remind you of your spiritual values, your goals, your identity, and then keep yourself accountable. You know, exactly, Teresa, but you're here. So it's nice sometimes, you know, for those of us who have fallen asleep for years, we wake up and we go, God damn, I'm still here though, right? You know, despite the number of times I've fallen asleep and I've forgotten how inconsistent I've been, I'm still here. And that's awesome. It hasn't broken you yet. You're still here. And uh, resolve now, once and for all, to do it every day. And inevitably, you will fall off the wagon again. And that's okay. Because then you can have another heroic I'm here moment. 
you know. As they say, uh, I think Sri Aurobindo says, spiritual life is like this. You resolve, you stumble, you awaken, you look sheepishly at God, you walk closer, you stumble, you wake up, you look sheepishly at God, you walk closer, you stumble, you know. So it is, it is a process. But at least resolve, you know. Don't bring your ideals down. Stick with your ideal. And your ideal is to meditate every day no matter what. House burns down, you meditate. You know, loved one dies, you meditate. It must be like that. It must be that nothing, absolutely nothing can move you away from your daily meditation. Why? Is this inflexibility? No, it's simply the recognition that meditation, peace of mind, uh, is required for proper action. If you skip your meditation and go out into the world, you'll do more harm than good. So meditation is one of the best things you can do for the people you love, for appropriate response in each situation of life you find yourself in. You must meditate every single day. Uh, but this is, of course, the level of the mind. Okay, so we're done with the intellect. We're done with the mind. So let's say you're daily working with concepts uh, in the intellect. You're daily purifying the mind through meditation so you can intuit those um, uh, concepts. And Anthony asks, in relation to the subtle bodies you talk about earlier, the etheric body comes from repetition, rhythm, and habit. Exactly. It has a kind of uh, momentum to it. It's cyclical. But actually, nice, Anthony, because this is going to uh, transition us nicely to our second to last thing. And our second to last thing is this. On the level of the body and energy, on the etheric level and the bodily level, there must be some practice of purification too. So you see, it doesn't matter how fearless you think you are or how peaceful you think the mind is, the body keeps the score, <laughs> as an author once said. So you must address tightness in the body. In fact, this is where most of us start, with physical postural yoga. It doesn't have to be physical postural yoga. It can be Sufi Sema'a dancing. It can be the Salah or the Solat, you know? Like, it can be any physical activity that addresses tightness in the body. I can only speak to you from the point of view of a yogi, since that is the experience of this boy. And in this, in this journey, yoga, has, asana, is essential. Because asana addresses where in the body we might be tight that we also are not aware of being tight, you know? So, it is so important to eradicate fear that you deal with its symptoms on the level of the body. So you might ask, hey, Nish, if asana was all it took to eradicate fear, why isn't all of California enlightened? You see, here on the West Coast, we have people doing three hours of asana a day. We have lifetime yoga teachers. Go to Starbucks with them. Watch them freak out when the coffee's not right. Hardly the uh, enlightened beings you'd expect after all that yoga, right? Okay, so obviously, if all you do is asana, you will experience brief moments of lucidity and fearlessness, but they will last only as long as your next re-traumatization event. <laughs> Once you leave the yoga studio, you'll just get re-traumatized again. Why? Because you're still holding erroneous concepts on the intellect, le intellect level, and you're still busy on the mental level. So whatever you do on the bodily or energetic level just doesn't last because the subtler layers, the mind and the intellect, are re-traumatizing the body and the energy. It's not enough to do asana or pranayam, but you cannot dispense with them. You see? Uh, you must do them. And, and by the way, I'm being dramatic here. We're covering all the bases. There are many people who have become powerful, enlightened masters without ever having done a day of asana. All right, so you don't have to do asana or pranayam. But given our lecture today about fear, I wanted to be, God willing, thorough. 
and to thoroughly root out fear on all of its levels, you must find each of its hiding places and snuff it out there. So even in asana, notice when you're lying in Shavasan and you do like that body scan, they do that in Vipassana too, and you're progressively relaxing the feet, then the calves, then the thighs, then the inner groin, then the lower back, you'll notice tension leaves those regions and creeps into the face. Do you notice tension's final stronghold is in the face? And then when you relax the jaw and you soften the cheeks, tension goes into the eyes. And then when you relax the eyes, it goes into the forehead. And then when you relax the forehead, it's like here. You see, fear, tension, contraction just finds a new place to hide, wait, and then it will pounce on you again. The church, uh, early church fathers like Evagrius, yeah, the final hideout, you know. <laughs> they, they, it looks, and uh, Evagrius of Pontus, one of the great desert fathers of the early uh, church, used to talk about them as demons. And he even has a, I don't know, it's in the other room. It's a great book. It's called The Monastic Handbook for Combating Demons. Highly recommend it. Uh, it's Evagrius of Pontus. Uh, and it's called Talking Back. I think that's the edition that I have. Talking Back a monastic handbook uh, for combating demons. <laughs> so Evagrius's depiction is that fear is like a demon, you know, and it's hiding. And every time you think you've dealt with it, it comes back in another shape, another form. And so we're being thorough here. When you think you've purified the intellect, when you think you've purified the mind, go to the body, go to the energy and see that you've been purified there too. Yeah, I know. You know what? Evagrius of, of, of Pontus, uh, he, he kind of had that reputation. He was a lecturer in Constantinople, and he was called the destroyer of the heretics because he would debate people and destroy them. So in a way, he was a gladiator. And you know what happened to him? He was so famous, so awesome at talking that he made a lot of money. He had like servants and he became very worldly. When he realized how worldly he was becoming, he left his lecturing at Constantinople, went to Jerusalem, and even there he became popular. And so he had to leave Jerusalem and go to the desert. because the only place you could go where his worldliness wouldn't catch up to him. <laughs> yeah, you can read about all the desert fathers in the book Philokalia. It's a great, one of the best Christian mystical texts out there in this humble opinion. And uh, even the way of, of the pilgrim, pilgrim, the way of a pilgrim. Yeah, he was Evagrius the Verberosaurus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Very verbi verbiage guy. Okay, so Hatha Yoga. Um, fear, when it's experienced on the level of the body, is experienced as a contraction in the muscles. So books like The Body Keeps the Score or body-based therapy, or yoga therapy, is intuiting this truth, that we feel fear on a bodily level, and no amount of cognitive reappraisal, no amount of talk therapy can address it, because it's in the body, not in the mind. It's in a deeper place, so to speak, according to Western psychological models. So um, what you do then is you practice your asana, and you find what's tight in the body. And as you do asana consistently every day, working with a teacher, working out of books, developing your own practice, more and more, you'll notice the body becoming very relaxed, very uh, strong, poised, and healthful. And then there will be a kind of like radiance in the body that is very conducive for intellectual and mental 
meditational philosophical practices. You see, so the body must not be ignored. And remember, in our obstacles to enlightenment lecture, we talked a lot about how a lot of us are armchair occultists. We're not yet in the body practicing with our senses. We're not grounded, you know. So that's important. Deal with it on the level of the body. And of course, it's not just asana. It's also pranayam. It's breathing techniques in order to harness the energies. And uh, we don't really talk about that since it's a very subtle topic and it makes no sense unless you've experienced it. You know, so unless you've experienced movement of energy in the body, and Anthony is actually a pranic healer, you know, so Anthony knows very well the, um, yes, it's that book, yes, The Body Keeps the Score that we were talking about, Bessel van der Kolk, yes, great book, um, and it's changing the way we approach therapy. So uh, if fear is contraction, it's a contraction of the intellect resulting in a contraction or busyness of the mind that often has symptoms in the contraction of the body. Clearly, asana and pranayam alone are not enough, but they themselves must be practiced to some degree, whether in a Sufi setting or a yogic setting or a Christian mystical setting. Some level of that must happen to solve for fear on the level of the body. Okay, now we're going to close the lecture. One final thought, and this will hopefully be home base. This will hopefully be the touchdown because this is perhaps the battlefield that matters the most. You know, this is where the, I don't want to say fight, it's very Zoroastrian and dualistic, but the play fight, the, the game with fear is finally won. This is the arena in which fear is checkmated, and it's the arena of the heart. This is the ultimate tool to overcome fear, and it will sound <laughs> the pillow fight. Yes, the pillow fight against fear. That's exactly right, Fabricio. This is where you do the ultimate whack, you know, feathers flying everywhere and fear giggling falls down and surrenders and lets you live peacefully and joyously. Um, and this is, you might think, strange from a non-dualist, but actually it isn't. It's, it's Once you understand non-duality, truly, you will see that non-duality in no instance denies the existence of God. And you'll see why in a moment. The final practice and the best practice for overcoming fear is bhakti, you know devotion. Devotion to what? That's up to you. But there is actually a very sophisticated literature, philosophy, and system around bhakti. Bhakti means devotion. Um, and uh, we're going to explain a little bit what we mean here. And, and there's kind of like two ways to approach this. So devotion is perhaps one of our first instincts as a human race. Like we... we look around the world and we recognize that it's a tremendously terrifying place. There's lightning and the lightning strikes the tree and then there's fire and then half my tribe dies. In the middle of the night, a prowling saber tooth took all my children away from me. Like life is tragic and things happen to me that are outside of my control that I, I can't do anything about. Uh, and that brings me great fear and great anxiety, but also great awe, you know, awe at the power of nature the power of lightning, the power of the tsunami. This awe is palpably felt by all of those people who still live in nature. You know, so people who still live in the jungles around the world, who live in the deserts and who live in the mountains, they are always in touch with that sense of, I am not the only one here. You know, as Zeti will tell you, in Southeast Asia, we are awash with folklore about various creatures, 
you know, that inhabit the trees. One would not dream of pissing on a tree without asking permission. The entirety of the world is anthropomorphized. And in the West, we look down upon that and we say that's animism. You know, it's just, uh, they didn't understand the natural world, so they had to personify it. But notice that the attitude hasn't changed. Way back when, when we were living in caves and trees or whatever, there was that feeling of awe and fear. Now there is still that feeling. We just pretend that we don't have it. You know, now we have these sophisticated ideas of how to turn a light on. You know, we learned a little tricks. We learned some tricks of science. And that's given us the illusion that we understand everything. And the retort to that is, Mr. Scientist, if you are so versed in the laws of the universe, why can't you keep a Tinder date entertained? You mansplained her away. Why are you so sad, Mr. Scientist? You know, why is your heart broken? Why are you in debt? Why do your parents hate you? What is the worth of your mysteries of the universe if all it's enabled you to do is turn on a light and make a few dollars here and there? <laughs> For all your wealth, what have you created but a city of lights to mask your ever-present fear of the dark? You see, we still fear the dark. We still recognize the awesome terror of nature. We just pretend like we don't. And when COVID comes, it throws us into a tizzy. We're not ready for that. Yet COVID, oh my God, it's nothing new. Sickness, plague, it's been here in the world forever. It's just us in our preciousness of Starbucks that have kind of tunnel visioned our way away from that reality. Forest fires, tsunami. In a way, Florida, people are a little bit more in touch with it. <laughs> you know, just all the tsunamis, all of that. Um, it's all there. So it's, it's this joke, you know. Our cities are light lit up 24-7 because we're afraid of the dark. Most of us don't even know what true dark is. We haven't yet been in a place where you cannot see your own hand in front of you. You know, spend a night in the uh, uh, Borneo forest, as Zethi knows, and you will hear a cacophony of sound. More insects than you even knew existed. Many of them could be crawling into your ear right now. You know, um, cries of animals. And was that a baby? Was that a human cry? Like the state of nature is awe inspiring and terrifying. We just forgot because we live in this echo chamber. But every tornado, every COVID, every thing like this is just a reminder of how little we can keep it together, how our structures are not built to last. Entire civilizations have come and gone. And I make this joke often. We have these lights, but that's not very impressive because my mother chews up your cities with her hurricane teeth and her cyclone tongue. You know, what is all this, uh, these trifles and games at the face of my mother? Of course, I'm talking about Kali. <laughs> so we see these civilizations come and go, and yet we have this hubris. What happened to uh, Assyria won't happen to us. What happened to Babylon won't happen to us. What happened to Rome won't happen to us. We're America. You know what I mean? Um, but as George Santayana often says, yeah, the hurricane parties. <laughs> yeah, so here we are pretending not to feel this awe and terror. So religion the most immature kindergarten religion is still a powerful one. It's the recognition, recognition of the awe and terror of existence. This is known as Shanta. Uh, and in the Bhakti tradition, this is respect. It's respect for the divine, you know? And uh, there are a few ways you can do this. 
One, in your own experience, of course, you can be in a forest or whatever. You can kind of intuit those states that are ever present, but maybe less dramatically than that. You know, less dramatically, think about digestion. You know, we eat our food, but we are not responsible for digesting. The food is digested by a power beyond our agency. You know, we breathe the air, but we are not responsible for the alveoli drawing it in. You know, it's, it's breathing itself by a power uh, beyond us. So it's only ignorance and it's only hubris that keeps us from recognizing that we do not live by our own will. You know, we make a pretense of this. We're like the employee that pretends to be the boss, you know, the obnoxious one at work. But in truth, at any moment, muscle dystrophy can hit. At any moment, a stomach ulcer can stop all digestion. Uh, at any moment on your way to school, car, ki- uh, drive-by, sh- you know, like all these things that occur beyond our control that cannot be controlled, yet we buy into the illusion that we have control. And that creates a lot of fear, right? The illusion that we can control the world gives us a tremendous anxiety because often the data proves the opposite. We plan and we plan and we plan, God laughs. You know, you heard that joke, men plan, God laughs. And this idea is that like, man, you know, it's at, at some point we have to realize it's beyond us. And I'm talking, of course, on the level of the jiva, on the level of the individual. In one's own experience, we do not even digest or breathe our own food or air. You know, we are being breathed, so to speak. Um, The next thing to consider is in all of our lives, we've experienced miracles. We've rationalized our way away from them, of course. But we've always felt, you know, I should have died. But somehow I missed that car crash by this much. Or this should have happened, but it didn't. And inexplicable things have happened to us in our life, but we don't look at them. We're just like, ah, bah humbug. You know, it's just science, science. I just don't want to. And we've robbed our life of that miracle, that mystery, that magic that many cultures in the world still can feel. So it is true. Most religions in the world and most of Hinduism is tremendously dualistic, tremendously devotional. Of course, Hinduism is a very broad spectrum and you have the non-duals, the Sankhya's, all that stuff. Um, And Buddhism, of course, is a very atheistic approach. Uh, But even then, look what happened. The Tibetan Buddhists brought all those devotional characteristics back in with Manjushri and Tara and all that. You know, so it seems like devotion is inextricable from the human spirit. It's only insolence or uh, hubris that keeps us from recognizing that. So in a way, this argument to you is an argument from this boy's heart to yours. Search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. (laughs) You cannot make an argument for this stuff. In fact, Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins will always win. I think it's so dumb for anybody in the Catholic Church to argue with Richard Dawkins. or You will lose! God cannot win to the intellect because it's a different way of knowing. Faith is the reasoning of the heart, not of the mind. It's the reasoning from deeply felt experiences that are non-verbal, non-conceptual. And all of them have it. All of us have them. You know, all of us feel that. So ultimately, we feel into this and we sense a kind of chaotic benevolence, you know, uh, it would be kind of immature to say it's just benevolent. I mean, yes, yes, it, we're something is digesting for you. Something is breathing for you. Something seems to be taking care of you, right? But it's also giving you cancer. It's also wrecking your cities. So it's kind of immature to say this God figure is benevolent, is nice. 
<laughs> At least not uh, in, in, in human terms, right? It's not nice in human terms. But yet we feel a benevolence. Yet even atheists in their final days often cry out, God help me. Uh, it's actually a funny joke. You should go bowling with atheists like the hardcore materialist. If you go bowling with them, you know what you'll notice? After they throw the ball for all the laws of physics that they know, have you noticed that they'll do this? As, as if they can move the ball with their hands. Like, there is a shaman inside of every atheist. You cannot take that out of the human spirit. As much as you'd like to pretend that you are not tapped in to the majesty of life, uh, you are. In the bowling alley, you display it. You know, with your making faces. And then when the ball goes in, you go, yeah! As if you did it at that moment. And, and in fact, you did, you know? And you know that. So search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. You know that this force, yes, dice rolling, throwing dice, ah, you know, roulette's table. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a great mistake to think that humans are not religious. We're just religious in a different school now. It's the school of materialism, you know, but we're dogmatically religious about that. So the idea here in bhakti is just to intuit for a moment the presence of some force and you can characterize that based on your own relationship to that force. You know, so it might be Jesus Christ. You know, you might feel that force to be this benevolent, calm, peaceful thing. It might be the Yahweh of the Old Testament, a fierce and legalistic entity like the Big Daddy. Maybe that's what you want. It might be the loving, nurturing, luxurious mother like Lakshmi or Aphrodite. For this boy, it's Kali, you know, a fierce and terrifying, but... uh infinitely loving in a way that my human mind cannot understand, deity, you know? This, uh, <laughs> dice, fucking app keeps self-correcting me to Portuguese. No, just do it in Portuguese. It's way better. I love it. Dice. But yeah, so you have this idea of like, okay, guardian angels, miracles, chaos, and things happening beyond your control. So it's only one step from there to intuit the existence of some force. Now, how do you cultivate a love for that. So the ultimate combating of fear, Bhakti says, is to develop a love for God. Whatever God is, you know. Now, I, unfortunately, a lot of us, we got a very bad taste in our mouths because a lot of us, you know, grew up in like a Catholic situation, like kind of a fear domination thing. So even that word is kind of like problematic. So don't use that word, you know. Stay away from the word God. Use, I don't know, use some other tradition that's less traumatic to you. Say Kali or Shiva or Krishna or... Or, or Source, or Tao, or, or whatever, Eddie Van Halen, for all I know, for all we care, right? Just your, your favorite acorn from your favorite forest, nature, whatever, who gives a hoot? Just the idea that there is some force greater than yourself, bigger than you. And then, the ideal now is to surrender yourself to that force. You do it either through intuiting that it's already a fact. There's nothing you can do. You already are surrendered to that force. It, it will have its way with you, whatever, whether you like it or not. So accept that or surrender through trust, knowing that that force is for the greater good, uh, your greatest good, actually, because such has been the case in your life. Notice the miracles that have happened. Notice the miracle right now of breathing. Notice how miraculous that you're here, you know, seated, seated in this room with these wonderful people that uh, you're here and not somewhere else, that you're drawing breath and muscle dystrophy hasn't happened yet. You know, uh, that's profound. And, and that should be joyous. Like, and, and who, who do you thank for that? You know, 
And it seems like not yourself because you didn't do it. You start to recognize that you were being swept along by some force. Thank that force. Call it the force for all we care, you know? And then you're, and, and you can like listen to Yoda or, 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 or Obi-Wan from the fourth movie. It's an energy field, penetrates all life. The Jedi draws his strength from the force, you know, whatever. Just call it what you want and feel into the existence of that and then love, love it, you know, surrender to it, delight in it. So religion, as uh, Paramahansa Vivekananda, peace and blessings be upon him, would say starts in fear. Kindergarten religion is fear. Religion ends in experience and awe. Sorry, sorry. I'll phrase that. I, I, I'm going to paraphrase. He said religion starts in fear and ends in love. Let's add, religion starts with belief and fear. Religion ends with experience and love. <laughs> I do not believe in God. I do not believe in God one bit, you know, any more than I believe that there is a cup in my hand. It is a matter of experience, you know, it is a matter of experience. And you can experience it in your own life with the following observations that we've pointed out. So what do we do? You can take it on faith. You can just believe that there were beings in the world. Uh, thank you, Anthony. Perfect love drives out all fear. St. John the Evangelist. Exactly. The, the Christians mastered this. Um, and and we'll, we'll say why in a moment. So it starts with this, like just recognizing in your own experience that there is some agency beyond your own that's responsible for all the goodness in your life. And even the bad in your life seems to be conducive for the good, you know. Um, so delight in that. Say thank you to that being. Offer thanks. That's one thing. Another way to approach this path is just on faith. And you might intuit that there were beings like the Christ, like Rumi, like the Prophet Muhammad, uh, like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, like uh, Ramakrishna Paramahansa. There were certain beings in the world who had this love and attested to the existence of this entity. And you take it on faith on their word. Why do you take their word for it? Because everything you know about them shows you their fulfillment. They're always dancing ecstatically. Ramakrishna and Chaitanya dancing and crying and laughing. They always act compassionately. They're willing to sacrifice themselves for everybody, as is the case of the Christ. Peace and blessings be upon him. They are incredibly efficient, lovable. So through the avatara, meaning through the Christ or through the Prophet Muhammad or through Ramakrishna, through the qualities that they exhibit and through their own testifying the existence of the father, the mother, etc., we can take that on faith, you know. And faith is the reasoning of the heart. Let none take that away from you, you know. So that's that's one thing. Um, and it's like kind of a faith of a feeling of like things will be okay. Uh, you, you're being held, etc. So it starts with Shanta, the respect for this power, the acknowledgement of this power. Then it turns into Priti. Priti is like an active love of this power. It's a love of life, you know, uh, 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 maybe a kind of curiosity for the mystery of it all. So you start studying, you read stories about great saints, you read stories about avatars like Jesus, you read stories about gods from different traditions, you go through this comparative study, and then you might get interested in ritual practice. So ritual practice is a kindergarten religion. So this is the final tool I will give you, but it's, it's really good. You know, it's, it's really good. Um, and, and uh, the analogy I might offer is this. Picture someone who hates dogs. Someone who just, it's hard, I know, but just picture someone who hates dogs. Like more of a cat person. And then one day, you gave that person a dog and you said, now take care of this dog. If you don't take care of this dog, it will die. So every day, that person takes the dog on a walk, first begrudgingly. 
you know, gives it food to eat, bathes it, cleans the kennel. In the first few, like, weeks or months or even years, the person does what they have to do, but they drag their feet. But don't you think after a certain amount of time, the person will come to love the dog? You know, just like an investment of time, energy, money. Maybe parents love their kids, mothers most of all, because of all that sunk cost, all that pain they had to experience for that damn kid. I might as well love this this fool. You know, and it's the idea that sometimes when you suffer for something, even by giving up some money, giving up some time, giving up some energy, you come to love it. You come to love the dog. So all you need to do is switch the G and the D. It's simple. You just start doing that for altars. Whatever your faith is, spend every, uh, uh, at least once a day, you know, go to the altar, light some candles, light some incense, spend some money to make the altar beautiful. Put a little time and a little energy, especially at sunset, to do evening vespers. Whatever your own dualistic practice is, do it. And if you're Islamic, five times a day, how awesome, right? And as you do this, soon, if you, if you, uh, many people do it mechanically, but if you do this, understanding why you're doing this, uh, sooner or later, you'll come to have a genuine love for God. And then you can abandon all your rituals. You see, the puja, the solat, all these rituals, and this is, I know, heresy to say, forgive me. I know not what I do. Um, but the, uh, the, the rituals like prayer, salah, um, puja, they're all just like the engine of the rocket ship. Once you're in space, cast that shit away, you know? All they were meant to do was create in you a love for God. And then what happens is you go from priti to viraha. Viraha is that feeling of, I cannot help but be drawn towards God. I love only God. I only want to talk about God. I only want to be around people who talk about God. I only want to do spiritual activities. It's the sweetest love you can feel because it's a love premised on loss. It's a feeling of tremendous longing. It's where you look at your stone statue and anger and you say, what the fuck? You appear to Ram Prasad. You appear to Ramakrishna, but you won't appear to me. Am I not better than them? You know? You, you show yourself to all these fools in history. You won't show yourself to me. Bah, you're no better than the stone in which image you've been cast. You know, like you can scold God. You can be angry with God. Uh, you can smash your idols. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but all you want to do is be with God. You fall in love with God. God becomes your lover. You feel romantic, erotic emotions about God. God becomes your friend, your buddy. You confide in God as a friend would. Uh, God becomes your father, your mother, uh, your child, like the baby Jesus or baby Krishna. Every human relationship you can have, you project it onto God. And then you become a madman, madwoman, mad person. You start talking to yourself, muttering to your idols. You know, you pace back and forth on your altar. You are fevered. You are fevered with this intense longing and love. And people will say that you are mad. <laughs> yes, you'll be mad, heart, heartbroken, wordless, ecstatic, as Coleman Bark says. And people would come to Ramakrishna and say, you are wheeling like a, dr reeling like a drunkard, you know. You're dressing like a woman. You're, you're crazy. And Ramakrishna would say, yes, I'm mad. And, but so is everybody else. Some people are mad for money. Some people are mad for fame. I'm mad for God. And you see the wisdom of this is these holy fools, these madmen for God, these mad women for God, recognize that every desire you have in your life is but a failed attempt to understand the root of that desire. You don't actually want money. You want peace. You don't actually want fame. You want peace. 
The thing that you want is God, actually. All right, Lyric, thank you so much for coming. It was so nice to have you. The thing that you want is God. And so the madman for God realized, I'm just going to go to the source, you know. I'm done with all this, these toys. And as Ramakrishna would say, when the child is done playing with her toys, mother comes to scoop her up. While the child is busy with the toys, mother is busy with the chores. But the moment the child throws the toys away, fame, fortune, power, throws it all away and goes, Amma, Amma, she'll come running and will scoop you up and peace, peace uh, beyond that passeth all understanding, you know? So uh, we have a lot more to say with regards to bhakti yoga and we'll save that for next week's lecture. So the final thing to add though is that there is no such thing as fear. It's a pretense. It's just love channeled in wrong directions. Love for money, love for power, love for yourself is actually love for God channeled into lower levels. And when we say God, we mean spirit. We mean peace. We mean the non-dual understanding. And in fact, I think Professor Chakravarti, great eminent Indian philosopher, called this prem advaita, non-duality of love. So this is the ultimate non-duality because in non-duality, we recognize that the chit, pure consciousness, reflects in maya in two ways. So this is some technical language for those of you who, who know a lot about Advaita. The chit reflects in two ways. One is the chidabhasha of you, which is the all, uh, sorry, I should say the one, the, the, monad, the monad, reflected in the individual creates you, but the one reflected in the all creates God. You see, so in Advaita Vedanta, we do say that God exists and we do say that you exist and we do say that you stand in relation to God the way Christ stood to the Father. I and my Father are one, but there is still a recognition of difference. The Trinity is still maintained. Yet, Advaita just takes one step further and says all of it, the Trinity, can be collapsed into one, sub not substance, but one impersonal principle. And that is chit, pure consciousness, sat chit ananda. So what is God made of? Consciousness. What are you made of? Consciousness. Everything is just consciousness. But that doesn't change that there is a God, that there is you, at least in Maya. And where are you now, if not Maya? <laughs> so once someone asked Vivekananda, who is a great non-dualist, he said, are you a non-dualist? He said, be gone with all your categories. As long as I'm in my body, I'm a dualist. <laughs> You see, so the final thing to offer today is, unfortunately, sorry, dualistic religion. Do your puja often. You know, submit. Islam, that word means submission, surrender. Realize you do not live by your own agency, but by a power far greater, a power benevolent as it is chaotic. And then descend into the madness of loving that, you know. And that's how you deal with fear on the level of the heart. Why? It will be crowded out by love. All right, so we'll close there and uh, we'll close in a special way. We'll sing the um, Kali Stotra thrice. So feel free to chant it along if you know the Kali Stotra. Otherwise, just immerse yourself in the vibration of the sound and let us close today's lecture together. Thank you all for coming. Oh, God.
काली महाकाली काली के परमेश्वरी सर्वानंद करे देवी नारायणी नमोस्तुते ओं काली महाकाली काली के परमेश्वरी सर्वानंद करे देवी नारायणी नमोस्तुते ओं काली महाकाली काली के परमेश्वरी सर्वानंद करे देवी नारायणी नमोस्तुते ओम शांति 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 हरि ओम तत्सत श्री राम कृष्ण रूपण मस्तू